Hopefully, by the time you hear this episode, the Republicans on the Banking Committee have found it in their hearts to do their actual jobs and show up to vote for the Federal Reserve nominees. Because you can't complain about inflation if you deliberately undermine the government organization designed to deal with inflation. Good grief. And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Right off the top, I need to say I am not a financial expert. I'm not even particularly good with money. I always need more. I never have quite enough. I'm frustrated that we didn't have financial literacy in school, that my parents didn't properly teach me about money. I hate that I'm not particularly savvy about interest rates or the stock market. However, I am a nerd for research and fascinated by how things affect our political climate. And since this one topic is dominating the economic news right now, this week, we're going to talk about inflation. Dun, dun, dun. The New York Times recently wrote that even though inflation has inserted itself into the American zeitgeist, and we're talking about it all the time, trying to understand it feels a little like a mind-bending task. People who have studied markets and the economy for years often don't know the ins and outs of how inflation is calculated, its after effects on society, who wins, who loses, and whether it's good or bad news. It's all nuanced. First, some background. Slammed by COVID-19, the U.S. economy was in near collapse in the spring of 2020 when lockdowns went into effect. Almost overnight, our economy just shut down. Businesses closed or cut hours, people were laid off, and consumers stayed home to protect their health and flatten the curve. 22 million jobs were lost at that time. Economic output ended up at record-shattering lows. Everyone believed we were heading into a brutal recession. But thanks to massive government spending to protect industry and consumers, emergency moves by the Fed, which is in charge of controlling inflation and setting interest rates in America, the rollout of vaccines, and quite frankly, America changing from inept leadership to capable leadership, one year later, instead of sinking into an economic downturn that was expected, the economy rallied and bounced back better than anyone could have imagined. All of a sudden, businesses were scrambling to meet demand. They couldn't hire people fast enough or buy enough supplies to fill customer orders. Businesses came roaring back so quickly that ports and freight yards couldn't handle the traffic and global supply chains got all gummed up. The simple definition of inflation is the sustained upward movement in overall prices of goods and services in an economy. Apparently, many people mistakenly associate inflation with the rise in prices of a few key industries like oil and gas or real estate, but it's really only inflation if the overall price of goods and services is rising. So everything from toothpaste to your medical costs. It's a general rise in prices where your dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. The basket of stuff you buy at the grocery store each week starts to cost more money. You can see inflation as a loss of purchasing power over time. Inflation is typically expressed as the annual change in prices for a selection of goods and services. In the U.S., there are two main inflation gauges, the CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, which measures the cost of things consumers buy out of pocket, like toilet paper, meat, cars, and the PCE, or Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, which also measures things people consume, but includes things that they don't directly pay for, like healthcare, which insurance companies and government benefits help cover. We have to acknowledge that prices do raise naturally over time. A cup of coffee today costs way more than a cup of coffee did in the 1960s, but we don't think that's weird. Inflation gets brought up when prices go up so fast that we notice in real time. 
Right now, inflation is increasing at a rate we haven't seen since the 1990s, and in some cases, the early 80s. In fact, inflation is at a 40-year high. The Consumer Price Index, which, as I said, measures what consumers pay for goods and services, rose 7.5% from January 2021 to January 2022, which is the biggest inflation growth since February 1982. Even if you strip out the volatile food and energy prices, the so-called core CPI, it doesn't look much better, sitting at around 6% over the last 12 months. Most of the inflation problems affecting us right now are due to supply chain issues. You can't get certain parts like computer chips or a type of metal to finish a product, so you can't bring that product to market. This is what's called demand-pull inflation, where people want to buy something faster than it can be made. So the product prices are inflated beyond their worth because there's a big demand and companies know they'll sell. Like my husband was just at the car dealership and the MSRP for the new two-door Bronco was $32,000, but it was selling on the lot for $65,000. And the guy told him, it'll sell. The supply chain issue, slowing down production, is due to the pandemic, the shutting down of industries, the shutting down of ports, less air travel, and quite frankly, less employees because we've lost millions of people to COVID worldwide and that left holes in the market. The other type of inflation is what's called cost push inflation, which is where it costs more to make the goods and services, so you increase the final price to offset those costs. So if it costs Buffalo Wild Wings more to buy chicken, they pass that cost along to their consumers and voila, inflation. Now, cost push inflation isn't just higher costs on raw materials. It can also be things like workers' wages or taxes paid to the government. Anything that raises the cost to do business, lowering the profit the business makes, and causing the company to choose to make up that loss by passing the differences along to their consumers. The Federal Reserve, what people call the Fed, is America's central bank and the institution in charge of keeping prices from increasing too rapidly. The Fed has two jobs. One, keep inflation under control, and two, maximize employment. The Fed expects some inflation, and they try to keep the PCE, or the personal consumption expenditures, in a range of around 2% a year. This gives companies room to adjust without being forced to go out of business or overcharge their customers. According to Gianna Smalek, who writes for the Federal Reserve for the New York Times, sometimes inflation actually has very little to do with the economic conditions. She says, the inflationary burst America is currently experiencing has been driven partly by quirks and partly by demand. The quirk side is things like the coronavirus causing factories to shut down or clogging shipping routes around the world, which limit their supplies and push prices higher. These are not things that normally happen. They are weird standalones that we couldn't have accounted for. We can't forget we're an extraordinarily unique economic circumstance. We don't usually stop the world's economy for a period of time and then try and restart it. So we can't just hit a switch and renormalize the way things used to be. The virus is still here. Many people are still scared and they won't do certain things. Some people's lives have changed dramatically during this period of time where they may not ever go back to the way things were. Maybe you or your company realize you don't need to do as many business trips as you did before. Or maybe you won't eat out as much because over the past two years you realized you don't have to. Maybe theaters or bars will take longer to fill back up. Or people might just prefer to watch new releases at home. Also, during the pandemic, we relied heavily on goods because we really weren't using as many services. The entire world is in a transitional phase. We're in the wait and see period. Perhaps certain jobs or industries will never come back the way they once were. 
Perhaps some industries will never recover. We just have to live through this transition and see how it looks on the other side. But Smilik points out that we also can't ignore that consumers who collectively built up savings after months in lockdown and repeated government stimulus checks are now out there spending, and their increased demand is also driving inflation. Airfares and rates for hotel rooms have jumped right back up after being terrible in the heart of the pandemic. People just want to go places and do things, and corporations know we will pay through the nose to do it. So even as prices go up, we'll continue to buy. We're just so happy to be out there in the world that we don't care what it costs. We're doing it. We've got this, oh, the last couple of years were so hard. We deserve this mentality. So prices go up with our demand. But if we keep buying, even when things are too expensive, then we have to acknowledge that we are partially the cause of the inflation we keep complaining about. And we have to be realistic about how much can actually be done about inflation. Elizabeth Bruning from The Atlantic clarifies that the president doesn't have as much control over prices and inflation as people might think. Take gas prices, for example. People are mad about gas being so expensive. But like every president before him, there's very little Biden can do to affect the situation. Gas is a worldwide commodity with limited players in the game, and they're restricting the amount of product that goes into the market so the prices stay high and they can recoup profits they lost during the pandemic. This is not a uniquely American problem. Biden takes the hit politically, but realistically, there's very little he can do to bring those prices down dramatically. The president does have some power, but we need to remember that inflation isn't just happening in America. It's a worldwide issue, and ultimately the president doesn't control prices at private businesses. Now, he can do things like cut taxes or regulatory laws that might be slowing down the supply chain. But much like Republicans worry that once you give social programs, you can't claw them back, Democrats get concerned that once you remove regulations, it's hard to put them back on. And one of the biggest Republican goals is lack of regulation, free market capitalism to the detriment of everything else. So Joe Biden has to be careful about how much he changes. Josh Barrow, senior editor at Business Insider and host of the weekly radio show Left, Right and Center, thinks the government should be thinking outside of the box. He says, we just went through this huge global crisis requiring novel responses that included the public and private sectors and lots of different parts of the economy. Why not get those various actors together again to try and solve the problem? During the virus, the government did things like promising to buy vaccines once they were developed to encourage private investment. Barrow asks, can the government get all of those voices together in a room and say, here's the national problem. What can your company, your industry, your local port authority do about this? The Republicans should be on board with this kind of plan because it would rely more on the private sector, something they are always pushing for. Barrow suggests we should be asking them, what can the government do to help you move this along faster? Are there regulations in your way? Do you need us to subsidize an increase in pay? Do you want a tax break so you can pay these workers more? But it should be noted that Biden is already out there trying to come up with these kind of -of out-of-the-box solutions. He's visited ports all over the country to get more goods moving so we have less of a bottleneck and more product coming to market. He put fines on people not moving their goods. He lifted regulations so ports could run 24-7. He put pressure on the mayor of Los Angeles to change the policy where you could only stack empty shipping containers too high so they wouldn't block people's views. But with this immediate crisis, he convinced them to relax those rules. So you might lose your view for a bit, but our shelves aren't empty. Barrow's question is, are there 40 or 50 other things like that that added together would make a real difference? Could the government put pressure on people to accomplish things that would start to break down the plaque that's holding the supply chain? 
The ports themselves are actually moving quicker than usual. It's just in this crisis, we need them to move even faster than that. Elizabeth Bruning, opinion writer for The Atlantic and New York Times, thinks it's best not to go too far outside of the box. She thinks we're better off to simply acknowledge the period of time we're in is weird, and that weirdness might be persistent for a period of time. But we should just continue with a straightforward effort to alleviate the worst effects and keep the economy stable while we search for an off-ramp. One of the most straightforward ways to deal with inflation is to look to the Federal Reserve. Fed officials have recognized that rising prices aren't going to be as temporary as they thought, and they could be a major threat to the labor market and the rest of the economy if we're not careful. And although there are steps they can take to slow the rise in prices, the Fed has to be careful because those steps come at a cost. The biggest thing the Fed can do is to raise interest rates, which basically means making it more expensive to borrow money, which slows the economy down and historically slows inflation. But so far, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell has resisted raising interest rates because he says the economy is still recovering, and he wants to get as many people back to work as possible before he puts a damper on the growth. He says he wants to see the labor market heal more before he raises rates, but the longer inflation persists, the more pressure will be on the Fed to increase those rates. Vox's Emily Stewart says the line that Powell is walking is tricky. Because if he raises rates too quickly, it could hinder the economy's recovery. But if he waits too long and inflation gets out of hand, then that will also hurt the economy. It's a quandary. Millions of people lost their job during the pandemic. And although lots have gotten their jobs back, not everyone has. Economists can't even come to a consensus about what's really going on in the labor force or why people aren't going back to work. I mean, my guess is that a lot of people are just tired of going to jobs with terrible pay where they're treated like garbage and have no benefits. Two years out of that world and they're thinking, hmm, you know, maybe I can do better. And honestly, shouldn't we have a society where they can? But that's just my opinion. For months, economists have been telling us that this spike in consumer prices, something we haven't really seen in the U.S. for decades, wouldn't be around long. The federal government kept using the term transitory, as in transitional, between virus-related chaos and something closer to normal. But economists are now suggesting that inflation has settled in, and these higher prices might just be sticking around. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, January's high rate of inflation was driven mostly by gains in food, electricity, and shelter, which are not luxury items, but rather things that truly affect Americans' bottom line. A high or unpredictable inflation rate that isn't outmatched by wage growth is hard, particularly on the poor, because they have way less wiggle room. A rich household facing high inflation may have to cut back on vacations or luxury items. A poor family who spends the majority of their budgets on necessities are often forced to cut back on things like heat and food. Celeste Ravelli, a director of financial planning at eMoney, says there is definitely a lot of financial anxiety right now, which is only exacerbated by the fact that we don't know how long this inflationary moment will last. Right now, wages are growing quickly. As Jen Psaki said on this pod, it's a worker's market. But the question is, is growth keeping pace with inflation? Especially if households lose government benefits like the expanded child tax credit, which was keeping many families afloat. This is one of the reasons people like Biden were so keen on things like the recovery bill and the Build Back Better bill. As Elizabeth Bruning says, we should be focusing on limiting people's strain right now. We should be making it easier to go back to work and to take care of your people and to be part of the economy again. 
A bill like Build Back Better would lower your healthcare costs, your childcare costs, what you spend on prescription drugs and preschool, and working families would get a tax cut. These are things that would really help our economy right now. Republicans argue that helping parents pay for daycare or lower health care costs or extending the childhood tax credit would only give people more money to spend at a time where we have less product and will only add to inflation. But I think that's a backwards way of looking at it. Making people less stressed about the basic necessities of life will allow them to re-engage with the market. My guess is Republicans are less concerned about these programs adding to inflation because economists and Nobel Prize winning laureates have all said they won't and more concerned that it will help people deal with other economic concerns that might change our society for the better. And once we add social programs that help people's lives, they know it'll be very hard to take them back. People will get used to it. And just like the Affordable Care Act, they will refuse to give it up once it's implemented. The Republicans don't want people thinking government can give them more than an endless war machine and tax breaks for the rich, and the Build Back Better bill would do just that. So no matter what you hear them say about inflation being bad, their votes in Congress prove that they are just fine keeping grocery bills high as long as the corporate tax rate remains low. Which I think is one of the reasons our government officials are suddenly so hell-bent on getting us back to normal. Why they're lifting mask mandates earlier than seems prudent. Right now, people are still spending more money on goods than services. We still aren't going to restaurants and movies and concerts and theater the way we were. But if the government can help normalize the service part of the industry, that would take the pressure off the goods part of the industry, which would create jobs in places that still haven't come back and give people something else to spend their money on that doesn't arrive in a shipping container, therefore alleviating the demand on the market and theoretically lowering inflation. But at the end of the day, we're still at the mercy of the virus. We can't just snap our fingers and turn the economy back on. But you can see the argument for the economic and political importance of finding ways to bring as much of society back to normal as possible. American political analyst Ross Dothart says there has to come a moment when the Biden administration or the people associated with the Biden administration should push for a full reopening of our society. Whether that's the COVID pill from Pfizer or when kids under five can get vaccinated, but it has to be something that gives people a good enough vibe to open up the economy and truly get things moving again. But Elizabeth Bruning points out that that's easy to say, but trying to find that balance is quite difficult. People are psychologically ground down and desperate to get back to real life. But our level of vaccinations is not nearly high enough in this country to get back to normal. So the pandemic just keeps going on. So get vaccinated. Help your country and your economy get back to normal. My goodness, play for the team. And speaking of teams... Now might be a good place to take a little break from economics for a palate cleanser to talk about the Olympics. So the Olympics just ended. And if I'm being honest, I wasn't going to watch them this year. I was annoyed they were in Beijing. I didn't understand why a country with such terrible human rights violations was honored with the Olympic Games. But I was also feeling a little unpatriotic. I'm mad at half the country right now. The American flag bugs me because I associate it with a hate group. The thought of chanting USA, USA triggers me. So I just thought, no, I'm out. But then I sat down with my husband who was watching and I remembered how much I love the Olympics. Yes, you can cheer for your country, but more than that, you're cheering for the athletes, for their efforts, for these marvelous gifted young people who've spent their lives trying to be great at one thing. You're cheering for people not afraid to put in the work, for people who had a dream and saw it through. It doesn't even have to be your country's athlete that inspires you. I was mesmerized by the Mexican figure skater Donovan Carrillo, 
Now, he's not the best skater there, but the heart this kid showed on the ice was what Olympic dreams are made of. He grew up practicing figure skating in a mall because that's the only rink there was in his town. He was made fun of because he was a skater and not a soccer player. People bullied him and made fun of him and made him feel small. And when he got to the Olympics, he thanked them for pushing him to work as hard as he did because he believed their mocking had driven him towards his dream. And for that, he was so grateful. This kid could not stop smiling. His energy was contagious. His spirit was everything the Olympics stands for. And he skated his heart out. Was he perfect? No. Was he inspiring? Yes. He finished his program with such joy that you couldn't help but be reminded of the strength and tenacity of the human spirit. The Olympics always end up reminding me of that. Those of us who watch get this short period of time where we remember how fulfilling it can be to put in the effort, to do the best you can, even when you might not win. That if you're gonna do something, do it with your whole heart, and if you fail, you fail, but at least you left it all on the ice. I hope those who are feeling discouraged in America right now can remember that Olympic spirit. I hope we recognize that even if it feels like we won't win, it's still worth the fight. That we can inspire others with our attitude, even if not with our victories. Because I'm telling you, four years from now, I'm going to be looking for Donovan Carrillo because that kid is only coming back stronger. So look out, Republicans. You may think you're going to continue to beat us with your hate and your lies, but we're not giving up. And we're going to continue to inspire people every day with our attitude and our effort. So we may not win today, but if we keep it up, we may just win tomorrow. USA! USA! We'll be right back after this. The Politics Girl podcast is sponsored by Athletic Greens. And if you've been listening to my journey, you know I've quickly become a huge fan. Okay, so what is Athletic Greens, you may ask? Athletic Greens is a powder supplement that goes into water. You start the day with one scoop on an empty stomach, and their special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, anti-aging, sleep, all the things. It's a one-day microhabit that uses the best products and is based in the latest science. In fact, their current formula is on its 53rd iteration because they're constantly updating it as the science advances. No matter how you eat, keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it'll fit into your lifestyle. It has less than one gram of sugar per serving, no GMOs, no chemicals or artificial anything. My whole family is into it. From my 14-year-old son to my super athletic workout everyday healthy husband to little old sit at a computer me. We all noticed a big difference in how we feel. Now is the time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into flu and cold season. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate in daily nutritional insurance. So February is all about love, and sometimes that's annoying. But as we're thinking about recognizing the people we love, let's include ourselves on that list. Now, feeling good about ourselves is not so easy when we feel bad about how we look. We know that's not the most important thing, and yet it affects us deeply. I said before that when I was young, I had acne, and it was brutal, and I was embarrassed. I can still remember standing with a group of people at camp in my bathing suit and shorts, and I was with my girls and some cool guys, and another guy came up to join us, and he was like, whoa, you have a lot of acne on your back, huh? And I thought I would die. I mean, I really just wanted the earth to open up and suck me in. It was horrifying. And I know there are hundreds of thousands of people out there who know that feeling so well. 
And that's why I'm so pleased to be partnering with Apostrophe. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that connects you with a board-certified dermatologist online who will create a personalized treatment plan that is tailored to your skin. You just have to fill out Apostrophe's quiz about your skin goals and medical history, snap a couple of selfies, and your dermatologist will create a completely customized plan. Apostrophe treats all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne and all the other places acne shows up. And they do it from the comfort of your own home. No doctor's offices, no pharmacy, no waiting in line. Apostrophe offers science-backed oral and topical medications clinically proven to help clear your skin, deal with anti-aging, skin texture, dark spots, and fine lines. You tell them what your skin needs and they will take it seriously. And right now we have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash politicsgirl when you use our code politicsgirl. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash politicsgirl and click begin visit. Then use our code politicsgirl at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for $5. We thank Apostrophe for sponsoring this podcast and for creating a company that will help us all love ourselves just a little more. Don't we all deserve that? So my son is taking Spanish in school. He started in seventh grade, but that was over Zoom. His teacher is spectacular, but he needs to practice more. And I thought maybe I would download one of those language programs or a practice app. But then I thought, wait, what about Wondrium? They do lots of languages in different ways for different learners. Why don't I try that? So I searched for Spanish lessons and found learning Spanish, how to understand and speak a new language. And I set my son up with the video. He knows he needs to do more work, but he's not particularly inspired to do it. The classes are 40 minutes each, but we break it up into 20 minute segments. He really likes it. He said, it's not just how to speak, but the history of the language. He said, because he's familiar with Spanish already, he feels like it's filling out his knowledge, like he has a tutor. The course does everything from vocabulary to verb tense to popular expressions, while integrating the Spanish language parts with small history lessons and the difference between individual Spanish speaking cultures. I'm thrilled that he's thrilled. Anything that encourages him to learn and practice is a winner in my book. And that's the thing about Wondrium. However you like to learn and whatever you like to learn, there is a topic and a way. They have video, audio, interactive how-to guides, documentaries. You can learn from teachers and professors and experts that will inspire you and remind you that learning can be fun. So consider signing up for Wondrium today. Wondrium is offering my listeners a special free 22-day trial membership to celebrate the new year. To get the offer, you need to visit wondrium.com slash politicsgirl. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash politicsgirl and get your learning on today or force your kid to do it. (laughs) And we're back and talking about inflation, why we have it and what we can do about it. You know what else also exacerbates inflation? Corporate greed. With all the talk of inflation from supply chain issues and stimulus checks and the fallout from the pandemic, there's been very little talk about the role huge corporations play in creating inflation themselves. Right now, corporations are doing great. The stock market is at an all-time high and bonuses are up. 66% of big companies are making higher profits now than before the pandemic. Because historically, large companies tend to use periods of rising inflation to boost their profit margins. Having fewer competitors in an industry makes it even easier for companies to raise prices. Corporations are passing on the natural reaction of the economy as it recovers onto us. 
And then they blame the government for the higher prices when it's really greedy corporations. So consumer prices are going up, but corporate profits are going up even faster. I mean, can we even really call it inflation if corporations are raking in the highest profit margins in history? Bloomberg just reported that corporations are having the highest profit margins in 70 years. So perhaps this idea that a disrupted supply chain or higher labor costs are the sole cause of inflation is a narrative we're being sold rather than the truth. Business Insider reports that a lot of large firms have spent their recent quarter calls bragging to investors about their ability to hike prices without anyone blaming them. The Wall Street Journal reported that roughly two-thirds of the largest publicly traded companies in the U.S. have reported better profits this year than the same period in 2019. Nearly 100 of those are performing at at least 50% better this year than before the pandemic. Lindsay Owens, PhD and executive director at Groundwork, recently put together a compilation of earning call transcripts from major corporations to see what CEOs were saying when they thought they were only talking to their investors. She posted the entire thing online before going on MSNBC to lay it out. Owens says, as you read the most recent inflation reports, pay close attention to what the CEOs who are actually setting the prices are saying. She points out, that when you read the transcripts, which they clearly assumed no one would read, these CEOs are literally bragging about hiking prices while hiding behind inflation. She lays out a number of examples, like the company 3M, which produces N95 masks, among other things, and how their CEO said in an earnings call that the team had done a marvelous job in driving up prices from 0.1% to 2.6%. The CFO told investors that the momentum for price raising is only pushing them faster. Tyson Foods, one of the biggest four meat monopolies that Biden is currently targeting for price fixing, saw its profits nearly double after they hiked their prices on beef by 32% and on chicken by 20%. In its fourth quarter report, Johnson & Johnson revealed it had raised prices despite raking in billions from the COVID vaccine sale. Its CEO told investors that the future need for medical care to address suffering and death is a big reason they're feeling so optimistic about the future. <laughs> Former U.S. Secretary of Labor Robert Reich says the current inflation rate is a symptom of corporate consolidation or the economic concentration of the American economy into the hands of a relatively small group of corporate giants with the power to raise prices. Less competition means they can charge more because you have nowhere else to go. Make no mistake, companies aren't raising prices because of inflation or supply chain issues. They're using inflation and supply chain issues as an excuse to raise prices. As Reich says, inflation may be a problem for consumers, but the bigger issue is the lack of competition. In the last couple of decades, American industries have gotten more dramatically concentrated, meaning there's less people in the market to compete, which makes it easier for these big corporations to just devour the competition. Reich says the right wants to blame inflation on Biden, but they never want to talk about the deeper structural driver of inflation, the concentration of the American economy in the hands of a few corporate giants with the power to raise prices. And he's not wrong. It is hard to find anything for sale in America that doesn't come back to one of a handful of companies. And without competition, companies can easily coordinate their price increases with a handful of other big corporations in the same industry. This way, they all come out ahead, but consumers and workers lose. If corporations were really competing against each other, they would swallow the extra costs, keep prices low to sell more goods. But that is not what's happening. 
Corporations continue to raise prices even as they rake in record profits. Look at consumer staples like diapers and toilet paper. Last April, Procter & Gamble raised prices on these things, claiming an increased cost in raw materials and transportation. But the company is reporting record profits. Last spring, PepsiCo raised prices, blaming higher costs for ingredients, and then recorded $3 billion in operating profits. How did this happen? Why do you have to raise prices to cover increased costs when you end up with even higher profits? It's because neither of those companies are actually competing with anyone. Procter & Gamble's main competitor is Kimberly Clark, who raised prices at the same time they did. Just like PepsiCo's main competitor is Coca-Cola, who raised prices the same time Pepsi did. Lindsay Owens compares this type of gouging to old-school mob tactics. There are four big meat producers in the U.S. These guys can just get in a room together and decide the price of meat. They make record profits, they blame it on inflation, and no one stops them. As Dan Price, public advocate for Fair Pay in America, says, why is it so much easier to believe that prices are going up because of inflation and not because there are two to four companies that control every industry? Reich points out that businesses that face meaningful competition would never do this. But America's got ourselves into a position where there is no meaningful competition. This is the market we've created for ourselves by allowing the FTC to be so lax with antitrust regulation. When you allow companies of this size to control the markets, we get price fixing and monopolistic behavior. This is why Elizabeth Warren ran for president as a compassionate capitalist. She said she believes in the markets, but markets without rules lead to theft. And so far, most of these companies are getting away with it. Reich says, look at fast food. Giant companies like McDonald's and Chipotle raise their prices, complaining about higher food and labor costs. But they are such profitable companies that they could have easily absorbed those higher costs. They just don't. They pass them along to their consumer. Because who's going to stop them? Large retailers like Kroger and Costco and Walmart and Target recently said that inflation has allowed them to raise prices well beyond where they needed to compensate for the supply chain problems or the worker shortage. Their prices aren't just offsetting the higher costs. They're doubling down on their profits. Corporate concentration really started happening in the mid-80s, where the U.S. government almost abandoned antitrust enforcement. Now two-thirds of American industries have become concentrated in the hands of smaller and smaller groups. Banks, broadband, pharmaceutical companies, airlines, big tech, consumer staples, you name it. That concentration of power means they're not competing. It means they can easily pass on the cost increases to their consumer and continue to post record profits. And let's be clear, what's happening right now isn't just good profits. It's record-breaking profits. These are the same companies who lay off people all the time and ship jobs overseas to stay competitive. So maybe we shouldn't be talking as much about the Fed raising interest rates to stem inflation, something that people imagine they will do between three to seven times this year, which is going to slow the economy, but consider reducing corporate market power and increasing competition so that prices come down naturally. You know, the way capitalism is supposed to work. We need more corporate competition. The Biden administration seems to understand this, but Reich thinks they need to be more aggressive and literally declare war on corporate monopolies and oligopolies. As Elizabeth Warren said, when a bunch of businesses have to compete for customers, they try to offer the lowest price. But when few giant corporations gobble up most of the competition, then they can just sit back, jack up prices, and watch the profits roll in. The best way to fight inflation might be to promote competition. As Bernie Sanders said, 
Corporate greed is Chipotle increasing its profits by 181% last year and giving its CEO 137% pay raise to $38 million, and then blaming the rising cost of a burrito on a minimum wage worker who's making 50 cents more. That's not inflation. That's greed. Now, breaking up corporate monopolies won't be easy especially since most politicians get all their money from corporations, thanks to the Supreme Court's ridiculous decision to declare corporations people in Citizens United. Corporate giants have spent the past four decades consolidating their power, both in the markets and the government. But we should certainly try, because having the American economy in the hands of a few giant corporations only hurts workers and consumers while rewarding CEOs and investors. And continuing on this path, will only exacerbate our income inequality and expand the chasm between those with wealth and power and the rest of us. And at some point, the gap will become too big and our system will simply break because it's not sustainable. Finally, we can't talk about inflation and breaking systems without talking about the Canadian-U.S. trucker situation. Look, there are a number of reasons for it, but we need to be very clear it's not about truckers, vaccine mandates, or freedom. It's not even a protest. It's well-funded economic warfare. It's sanctions put on both countries from the far right and international dark money to deliberately create havoc, disrupt supply lines, and blame the current left-leaning democratic governments. It's about sabotaging two major economies, two major democratic economies. It's not some authentic groundswell protest. 90% of Canadian truckers were vaccinated and working. Who decided to bankroll these people to sit and do no work? to pay for their gas, the signage, the flags. It had nothing to do with freedom and everything to do with political sabotage. The plan is to create gridlock and drive inflation higher. The fact that it is supported by the far right, the Republican Party, and Fox News only further proves that it is simply a tactic to trash both economies for their own self-interest and have a better shot to replace the current leaders. As Utah Senate candidate Evan McMullen said, these trucker protests are going to drive inflation even higher for people working hard to make ends meet and get ahead. Yet self-serving politicians in Washington are cheering them on to satisfy their extremist factions. So Republicans will complain about inflation and supply chain issues, but support the people purposefully attempting to destroy American supply chains and extend inflation. As Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer said before the bridge reopened, our economic momentum is at risk because commercial traffic is at a standstill. Hundreds of millions of dollars are being lost every day as a result of this blockade. This behavior is a huge economic hit to the working families in the Midwest and Canada. And while we respect the right to protest, you don't have the right to bring an economy to its knees and put people out of work. Industries that were just getting their footing back after the pandemic are now struggling again. To be clear, Blocking highways and bridges is not constitutionally protected free speech or peaceful assembly. It's a crime. U.S. Title Code 18, 1951. A crime costing companies millions of dollars, shutting down factories where people work, and putting the society at large in danger as they block emergency vehicles. Why would the Republicans be supporting it? The GOP may be the opposition party, but they're still the country's leaders. Why would they want to both keep people from work and continue a supply chain crisis? Who are they working for? Because it sure isn't the American people. Is this about running cover for companies who need a ruse to justify raising prices while posting record profits? Is it about making sure inflation continues so they can weaponize it against Biden in the midterms? Do they like dominating the news cycle with their false idea of freedom? 
Or is there a darker purpose that goes beyond plain power and greed, where they, the members of the government, are actually running an anti-government op, just like they did on 1-6? Are they so done with democracy that they will take power however they can, even if that means trashing the American economy to do it? Remember, the same party cheering on the truckers blocking commerce and borders is the one that passed a law that said you can drive over protesters in your car if they're stopping you from getting to work. Florida. Or you can shoot protesters you feel threatened by. Rittenhouse. Or that we should unleash the full force of the military on protesters who disrupt cities during the BLM protests. These are the same people who yelled for over a year to open everything up. And now that everything is opened up, they support people shutting everything down? Make it make sense. Look, inflation is a worldwide problem. It's based on the pandemic, what it did to our supply chain, our workers, and our spending habits. But statistically, we have to remember the economy is doing quite well. Our unemployment is at record lows. People have some money in their pockets. They're quitting their jobs at record rates, which is generally a good sign that they believe they can find another one. And yet, when you ask people about the economy, they say it's bad. Polls show that people feel worse about the economy now than they did in April 2020 when we were on the verge of heading into another Great Depression. Is that because people just expected Joe Biden to come in and fix everything? Is it because the Republicans are gifted propagandists who are selling the message that inflation is terrible and it's all Joe Biden's fault 24-7? Is it because people are just dying to get back to normal that anything less than normal feels like a disappointment? Emily Stewart, who writes about business and the economy for Vox, explains that inflation has a really powerful psychological effect on people. It makes people worry. If you think your paycheck isn't rising with your cost of living, that's a scary prospect, and it convinces you that we're on the wrong track. The bottom line is, there are things we can do. The Fed can always raise interest rates if inflation becomes really worrying. No one is asleep at the wheel. But Stewart puts it really well when she says, the economy is really confusing right now. We're coming out of an unprecedented shutdown. The labor market is weird and no one can quite figure out how to get people back to work. She says anyone who says they know exactly what's happening in the economy right now is projecting a confidence they don't really have. She goes on to say that it's important to remember that America made a lot of gains since March 2020. The government stimulus really did help. Low-wage workers have the upper hand for the first time in a long time. And it's not clear that higher interest rates are going to solve something like a worker shortage. If you don't want to go and do the job because the job is terrible, higher interest rates are not going to make that happen. At the end of the day, inflation will likely go on as long as companies struggle to keep up with consumers' overwhelming demand for goods. A resurgent job market means Americans have money to spend on things. As long as people still want to buy, then companies will still have the luxury of raising prices. We might need to consider finally addressing the unbridled corporate power on our economy. As Jason Furman, economic advisor at the Obama White House, now a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School, says, we need a lot of humility talking about how long this will last. He thinks it's with us for a while, that inflation rates are going to come down from this year's blistering pace, but it's still going to be very high compared to the historical norms that we've been used to. The GOP are targeting Biden over inflation, but not because they care to fix it, but because it's a club they get to hit him over the head with. As Jen Psaki, White House press secretary, explained, the president is using every tool at his disposal to fight inflation and lower prices in America. But the Republicans won't give him credit or help. And they show us with their actions every day that, quite frankly, they would rather the crisis continue. As Republican Senator Tim Scott said, we're going to continue to have inflation and then the interest rates will go up and that will be a gold mine for us.
No thought for the American people. No thought for the good of the American economy. Just like the virus, their plan is to keep it going to hurt their opponent. Who cares how many Americans suffer if it gets them back into power? People want simple answers, and we have an aversion to the truth. But the truth is we would have inflation and high gas prices regardless of who is in office. Presidents don't control global market issues. It's a byproduct of the capitalist economy we say we want. The question is how we deal with it. And at least our president is trying really hard to do that. No matter how bad it gets, economists seem extremely confident this rapid inflation will not be permanent. According to experts, there are plenty of reasons to believe this price burst will fade. Much of the increases this year are still due to shortages of goods, and we are likely to see an ease in that as companies figure out how to produce and transport what people want in a pandemic-altered economy. Or we could get far more aggressive and proactive with antitrust laws. The basic building blocks of the economy haven't changed. We have an aging demographic and high inequality of income, and those things have a tendency to drag inflation lower as people prefer to save money or don't have enough money in our wildly expensive economy. Biden took over during a national emergency. He got us through the pandemic by sending money to the unemployed and small businesses and pushing for vaccines and masks. He saved millions of jobs and tens of thousands of lives. Maybe people have forgotten this, or we just love to criticize, but that's what he did. Unfortunately, most people won't remember that when they're paying for their groceries or more at the pump. Don't let the sticker shock overwhelm you or the propaganda fool you. Inflation is happening all over the world but it won't be indefinite unless we allow it. Remember, a lot of what's happening is corporate greed and price gouging blamed on inflation. The rising cost of living has been a crisis for the majority of Americans for decades. Healthcare, higher education, and housing have all skyrocketed. But all of a sudden, all we can talk about is the price of a turkey at Thanksgiving? Please. As Haseem Rashad, American author and human rights activist, said so well, I don't like paying higher gas prices either. But it's incredible that people will buy into the GOP outrage about gas being $4 instead of $3.50, but excuse them for keeping the minimum wage at $7.25 instead of $15, or insulin at $1,200 instead of $35, or paid leave at zero weeks instead of $12. We can be upset about inflation, but we also have to keep our eyes open to what's really holding us back. So that's it for today. As someone very clever online questioned, if paying a cashier a living wage makes prices go up, why doesn't replacing cashiers with self-checkout make prices go down? Why indeed? There's always a reason something is happening. Never stop asking questions and refuse to be fooled by those who would seek to fool you. Now go out and make the world a better place. Thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.